Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. What's up? Don't think, just answer. Okay. What is the greatest movie of Charlie Sheen's career? I would have to go with Young Guns. Oh, come on. I was sure you'd say Hot Shots, and I would say that's correct. I don't know that I've ever seen Hot Shots. What? Yeah. How is that possible? I don't know. Just never watched it. I take. I, <laughs> Are you with chickens right now? I'm in the duck pen building the quail thing. Those are the geese. <laughs> okay. Okay. I guess that's all I need then. <laughs> I wasn't expecting any of this. <laughs> this is perfect for podcasts. Yeah. You should watch Hot Shots. I'll see you later. All right, later, brother. <laughs> From Mill U Media Group, this is 30 Pop. A weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Bronner. This is Season 3, Episode 29, Premieres, Pictures, and Very Poor Behavior. Today, we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, August 3rd, 1991. Hello, friends. I'm back after spending a week on the beach with my face in a book, and as promised, I'm feeling rested, refreshed, and ready for some retro nostalgia. I'd like to start by offering a huge thank you to my longtime friend, cousin-in-law, and regular 30 Pop guest, Caleb Sanderson, for stepping up to the proverbial plate last week and leading the way in my absence. I thoroughly enjoyed his particular perspective and sensibilities as a high school English teacher and sports fanatic. But I'd like to immediately follow that up with an apology for his unwarranted, clearly unresearched, and honestly just inexplicable comments about the objective greatness of modern-day Renaissance artist and my lifelong personal hero, Will Smith. Am I thankful that Will Smith has a successful acting career? Obviously. But do I think the greatest single of his music career, Men in Black Notwithstanding, Summertime, deserved more chart success than it received, not less? 1,000% yes. I love that song no less today than I did 30 years ago, and I have no doubt that in 30 more years I'll still love it just as much. If I'm alive 30 years after that, rest assured I'll still be piping that classic into my hearing aids. There are few songs from 1991 more laced with nostalgia for me than this one. I have very specific, highly treasured memories from summer 1991 for which this song is the soundtrack. Friends, Caleb was wrong, and I'm sorry. Had I only known how reckless he'd be with his words. And Mr. Smith, Will, if you're listening, thank you for giving us this perpetual summer playlist staple. It will never be taken for granted on this show again. 
Summertime was, once again, the number one song on the Hot Rap chart this week in 1991. It was also, for the first and only week, the number one song on the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart. And if you ask me, it probably should have been at the top of the Hot 100 as well. All due respect to Brian Adams, whose Robin Hood Prince of Thieves theme, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, remained in the top spot for the second straight week. Natalie Cole's Unforgettable With Love also held strong for the second week as the top album on the Billboard 200 chart. We did, however, have a new number one song on the Hot Country chart. In fact, we had a new number one song last week as well, which Caleb forgot to mention in the midst of his ill-intended railing against American Treasures, DJ Jazzy Jeff, and the Fresh Prince. Last week's top country song was Ricky Van Shelton's I Am a Simple Man. You say you're having trouble figuring me I don't believe I'm such a mystery Baby, what you get is what you see This was Shelton's first single off his fifth studio album, Backroads, and his ninth career number one hit. But it was replaced just a week later by the biggest song of Trisha Yearwood's career, She's in Love with the Boy. While I love a ballad about a long line of women falling for very dumb men, there was another love song that also flew under the radar last week during Caleb's unjustifiable rant against the crown prince of hip-hop. That was the song Baby I'm Ready by sibling R&B duo Levert. Levert was made up of brothers Gerald and Sean Levert, the sons of R&B legend Eddie Levert, who was and remains to this day one of the founding members of the OJs, who are widely known in part for this 1973 number one hit. Levert, both together and separately, had a fair amount of success throughout the 90s. Sadly, in November of 2006, Gerald, known as the teddy bear of the group, died at the age of 40 by accidentally overdosing on prescription drugs. And two years later, at only 39 years of age, Sean died of the opposite of that. He was sentenced to 22 months in jail for unpaid child support and was denied the prescription medication he needed. His withdrawals weren't the only cause of death, as he had a number of other health issues, but they were deemed to be a factor. Awful. 
In sports news this week in 1991, as Caleb mentioned last week, on July 28th, 37-year-old Montreal Expos pitcher Dennis El Presidente Martinez threw a perfect game against the Los Angeles Dodgers for a 2-0 win. A perfect game, if you don't know, means that no batter from the opposing team ever makes it to first base. Kind of like me up until 10th grade. The Dodgers pitcher in that game, Mike Morgan, also pitched the complete game and was also perfect through the first five innings. The latest the opposing starter in a perfect game has ever remained perfect, according to Wikipedia. This was only the 13th perfect game in Major League Baseball history, and to date there have only been 23 total, three of which happened in the 2012 season alone and none of which have happened since. The next night, July 29th, the ongoing saga between Oakland A's Jose Canseco and the entire fan base apparently of the New York Yankees continued on. When fans threw cups, radios, cameras, cabbage, and no kidding, a blow-up doll at Canseco when he took the field. I don't follow baseball closely or at all, but even still, I have to assume this isn't in any way normal behavior. Speaking of odd behavior, on August 1st, 1991, 77-year-old retired Hollywood actress-turned-social recluse Hedy Lamarr most famous for her role as the biblical Delilah in Cecil B. DeMille's 1949 film Samson and Delilah, was arrested for shoplifting about $21 worth of laxative tablets and eye drops from an Eckerd's drugstore outside Orlando, Florida. She claimed to have simply walked out of the store by mistake forgetting to pay, which doesn't sound impossible, but it does seem a little suspicious in light of the fact that 25 years earlier she was charged and tried for shoplifting $86 worth of clothes and cosmetics at a Los Angeles department store. In that case, she claimed that it was all a simple misunderstanding, as many other stores allow her to take items she wants and pay later. In each of these cases, it sounds as though Lamar, who was also notable as a successful inventor, was taking her own advice, for which she was quoted in various publications throughout the early 1940s. Any girl can be glamorous. All she has to do is stand still and look stupid. In a far more twisted headline from this week in 1991, 43-year-old funk singer Rick James, famous for his 1981 hit Super Freak, which had just earned him a Grammy a few months earlier after being sampled on MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This, was arrested alongside his 21-year-old girlfriend on charges of imprisoning, sexually assaulting, and torturing a 24-year-old woman with the hot end of a crack pipe. There are, unfortunately, many much more graphic details about this story available online, but I don't want to kill the good 30-pop vibes by getting too far into them here. However, about a year and a half later, while out on bail awaiting trial for this incident, James and his girlfriend were charged with, once again, kidnapping and assaulting a female music executive with whom they had a scheduled business meeting. He was convicted in both cases, but still only wound up serving a little over two years in prison. Rick James may have been a lot of things, good, bad, and in between, but he was, at least in part, a twisted, drug-addicted menace to society who deserved a much harsher punishment for the violence and trauma he inflicted on these women. I'll resist the low-hanging fruit of calling him a super freak. No, I won't. Rick James was a super freak. In Hollywood this week in 1991, we had a ton of new movie releases of varying quality, some more worth our time than others. I'll cover them in order of least to greatest, at least as far as I can assume, having only ever seen one of them. Least on the list is the G-rated animated musical comedy about the abandoned dog of a Las Vegas showgirl, 
Rover Dangerfield. No respect. No respect at all. He's the last word in animal magnetism. I'm smart. Well, when I was paper trained, I learned to read. He's the hottest thing that ever hit Las Vegas. I love my life in Las Vegas. I wouldn't change it for anything. Well, I got it made here. He's animation's newest party animal. Why, it's a dog's life and I love it. Las Vegas is the place for me. He's Rover Dangerfield. Hey, gang, how you doing? He's a big city hound on his way out of town. Oh, pardon me. I mean, I'm new in town. Way, way out of town. Ah! I'm on a farm. <laughs> I think I'll change my name to Jethro. What a vocabulary. He's hot on the trail of fun. Get away from those chickens. Look, we're buddies. And adventure. Uh, who do you think you're dealing with? Little Red Riding Hood? And he's about to discover... Hey, who's she? A farm is the perfect place for love to grow. I'd give up a bone for you Cause that's how much you mean to me When I first saw your face My heart began to race You filled my soul with ecstasy Hey, Big Mouth! Who asked for a wake-up call? He's man's best friend. Fetch, boy, fetch! You want it? You go get it. He's Rover Dangerfield, the dog who gets no respect. No respect at all. I'll admit, with the possible exception of his role in Caddyshack, I've never really cared much for Rodney Dangerfield's brand of comedy. So this movie doesn't really stand a chance for me, even knowing the story was developed alongside the great Harold Ramis. It was conceived of as an R-rated animated feature, but Warner Brothers insisted that the content be modified down to a family-friendly G rating. Despite its mostly positive user reviews on IMDb.com and its very short runtime of an hour and 14 minutes, I am confident this one would be a waste of all our time. Next up, another movie I'm unlikely to ever see, the sequel to a 1980 commercially successful critical failure, whose plots are as similar as their titles. Return to the Blue Lagoon. It was the first motion picture to explore the innocence of natural love in a paradise filled with wonder. Now, the story continues for a new generation. <laughs> Columbia Pictures invites you to return to the Blue Lagoon. <laughs> Two castaways alone in a world untouched by time. Through the eyes of innocence, they discover their sensuality. Do you remember Mother said what happened when I became a woman? Yes. Become one. Through the heart of danger. I like the way it makes me feel. They face every challenge nature has to offer. It feels all alive. Until the day. <laughs> Civilization invades their island paradise. Get away from me! I want us to be husband and wife. Yes. And tests the boundaries of their love. Return to the innocence. Return to the mystery. Return to the passion. Return to the Blue Lagoon. 
out of innocence comes the most sensual love of all. This was the feature film starring debut for 15-year-old Ukrainian-born model and future sci-fi and video game movie franchise queen, Mia Jovovich. This film has the distinct honor of holding a score of 0% on RottenTomatoes.com, a full 8% below its 1980 predecessor starring then-also 15-year-old Brooke Shields. The major, or perhaps only, differences between these two films are, one, the rating, the original film was rated R while this sequel was rated PG-13, and two, their commercial success. The original film was produced on a budget of $4.5 million and grossed nearly $60 million worldwide, despite being very, very bad. Return to the Blue Lagoon cost a still relatively modest $11 million, but only grossed $2.8 million globally. More than a third of that was on this, its opening weekend alone. Continuing the trend of absurd plot lines, the next new release on our list this week was the sci-fi horror film Body Parts. I'd appreciate it if you'd uh, if you'd send a, a copy to all the members and indicate that. Uh... Bill, there's nothing to worry about. Everything's going to be just fine. lost your arm in a car accident yesterday. We've transplanted another arm for you. How does it feel to have someone else's arm? Dad, it's sort of gross. Well, that's not how it looks. It's how it works, right? I think there's something the matter with me. Oh! It's the arm. Billy! What's going on? There's something wrong with the person I used to belong to. You have this guy's arm. You don't have his personality. I want you to run my prints. Any past record I had would show up on the printout, right? You put a killer's arm onto my body and you didn't tell me. That arm can't do anything you don't want it to. How do you know that? Where does evil live? Does it live in the soul? In the mind? Maybe it lives in the flesh. Maybe you got some kind of demon inside of you these days. Why doesn't anybody want to ask any questions about these operations? I hit my kid. I tried to strangle my wife. I have nightmares every night. I want this arm off! Don't you realize what I and my team have accomplished with that arm? Take the kids and go to your mother's. Don't pack, just go now! Body parts. We're making history here. This movie had a slightly better opening weekend, bringing in $3 million towards its budget of $10 million, although it never quite broke even. Which sort of parallels its critical reception. Most critics felt like it had the potential to be interesting, but just wasn't. For example, this rave review from Peter Rayner of the LA Times, who said, quote, It isn't quite as terrible as you might imagine. End quote. Stephen Wiggler of the Baltimore Sun described it as so bad it's almost good. I can say, based on the trailer and these reviews, I almost want to watch it, but not quite. One movie I didn't particularly care to see at the time, but which I do think I'd check out today, is the Michael J. Fox Woody Harrelson comedy, Doc Hollywood. 
a title for which I only just realized was intended as a play on the name Doc Holliday. Okay, okay, question. Beverly Hills, the most beautiful woman in the world, plastic surgery. What do these three things have in common? Me in less than a week. We want to hear all about California. I heard that the women out there have their chests enlarged, their thighs vacuumed and barfed on purpose. We are prepared to offer you a permanent position as medical practitioner supreme here in the greater Grady metropolitan area and squash capital of the South. All in favor say aye. Aye. I'm in the twilight zone. I'm uh, just on my way to Beverly Hills. Plastic surgery. Not that you need any. I suspect your version of romance is whatever will separate me from my panties. What I'm talking about is dinner. Wear a dress. Panties are optional. Don't you have some kind of urgent business thousands of miles away from here, doctor? He was a man with big plans, but he never planned on her. Michael J. Fox. Morning, Doc. That's a nice pig you got there. Yeah, that's what they tell me. Julie Warner. You can blink now. Woody Harrelson. I could have gone to med school. Just the science part of it I had a problem with. And Bridget Fonda. Do doctors know more about sex? Doc Hollywood. One of the taglines that was used in the marketing for this movie was... He was headed for Beverly Hills to be a plastic surgeon, but he took an exit to a town that didn't take plastic. And even despite that, the movie did pretty well at the box office. It brought in $7.2 million its opening weekend and nearly $55 million altogether, almost tripling its $20 million budget. As I've said on multiple occasions, I have a hard time wanting to see young Michael J. Fox as any character other than Marty McFly, Scott Howard, or Alex P. Keaton. But... I may make an exception now with this one as it doesn't look terrible. The top film at the box office this week in 1991, also on its opening weekend, was, as I mentioned in the opening of this episode, the beyond ridiculous Top Gun parody starring Charlie Sheen, Carrie Elwes, and Valeria Golino, Hot Shots. Somewhere in the Mediterranean, on this naval aircraft carrier... These men have been selected to write a page in military history. They are the best the Navy and Air Force have to offer. They've been brought together to form an elite squad of fighter pilots. Their mission, one of national security and international concern. These are the fearless pilots. Seems no matter what I do, I end up hurting someone. The men who command them. Pudding? No, thank you, sir. I'll do my best. And the women who love them. Charlie Sheen. Never wanted to be a horse so much in my life. Lloyd Bridges. Call them the best of the best. Call them... Eddie's! Hot Shots. The mother of all movies. 
this country. This movie was a blockbuster in the truest sense of the word. I mean, it wasn't Terminator 2 successful, but it did well. It was produced for $26 million, and it grossed nearly $70 million in the U.S. and Canada alone. Its gross worldwide was over $180 million. Now, granted, Top Gun grossed that much in the U.S. and Canada alone and brought in a worldwide total of almost $360 million, while being produced for a measly $15 million. But still, for a parody, it's very impressive. And it will remain impressive through the end of summer 1991, as it maintains its place at the top of the box office for four straight weeks. As much as this film was a spoof of Top Gun specifically, it's also a spoof of Tom Cruise in general, with references to multiple Cruise films sprinkled throughout, which was probably a relatively easy task considering the actors playing two of the film's main characters had starred alongside Cruise in recent years, Golino in Rain Man and Elvis in Days of Thunder. This was a true favorite for me as a kid. This particular brand of ridiculousness, be it delivered by Charlie Sheen, Leslie Nielsen, Mel Brooks, Michael Winslow, or any of their contemporaries really connected for me. It does make for an interesting rewatch, though, 30 years later. Unlike The Naked Gun a few weeks back, this one was a minor letdown when I watched it this week. It's still funny enough, but it's not quite on the same level as the Naked Gun films. Clever, but not as clever. I did still enjoy it overall, though, and look forward to covering its sequel in a couple years on this show. For now, though, friends, that's all I've got for you. I'll be here again next week for some more retro goodness and Will Smith adulation. Please be sure to come back. And until the next time we're together, please know, I want a job and a piece of land, three squares in my frying pan. Don't seem so hard for me to understand. I am a simple man. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. 